that in John 12, just before the events of the crucifixion started, before that week started, that Passion Week, that there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, the Passover. These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Boy, that is our prayer this morning. We wish to see Jesus. Let's pray that we'll see him this morning. Father, we do want to see Jesus come through your words this morning. We want your spirit to make an impact upon our lives. You know that your word is the only thing that will ever change the human heart. Change us this morning. That is why we are here, Father, to hear from you, to hear from your spirit and change us to be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You know, before we start our message this morning, I think I need to put some things in proper context. We need to have our minds set in the right place before we go to the Scripture. And so what I want to do is remind you, and you may already know this, you probably do, that we live today in a Genesis 3 world. Now, what does that mean? We live in a fallen world where sin and death and misery reign. That's just the way it is. So even though we have a lot of good lives and a lot of good things that we celebrate in this life, we've got to know that overall, there's evil in the world. And it it takes many different shapes and it manifests itself in many different ways. Just this week, listen to some of the highlights that I ran across, and there are many more. There are, there's, there's, it's not just bad guys doing bad things in the world that we say are evil. There is evil done in the name of religion. And those of you who have been watching Boko Haram, the radical group, religious group over in Nigeria, killing hundreds of people just this week. And it's not just over there that that happens. A gunman opened fire at Christian students, killing one, wounding others at Seattle Pacific University. So that kind of thing happens here as well. There's evil that happens all over the world. There was a gunman who killed three police officers in Canada. You think of Canada as a pretty peaceful place. You don't think about it being a bastion of violence, and yet evil shows up even in places like Canada. And then probably the story that maybe got your attention most this week is the story of evil and human depravity when two 12-year-olds stabbed one of their friends 19 times to impress some force on the inter- some uh, unknown person on the internet. The slender man stabbings they're calling it. So yes, there is evil in the world. It's encroaching upon our lives. It's getting ever closer to the mainstream. And so to understand our passage today, I think we need to have this firmly in the background of what Jesus is going to tell us about temptation and deliverance from evil. We have to understand that we live in a fallen world, a Genesis 3 world. That mankind is susceptible to temptation to do evil in this world. And and to make my point, I just want to very quickly say that of all those things that I just talked about and the many other things that we know happen, read the police blotter from any paper, the only thing that's keeping us from being those people, circumstances and the grace of God. Do you believe that this morning? You could be one of those people 
that is succumbing to that temptation to do evil, except for your circumstances, maybe where you're born, maybe where you live, maybe the place that God has put you, the family he's given you, and the grace of God keeps us from that kind of evil. So we're that close to it. Now, last week, we began talking about past sins and forgiveness of past sins and how God has made a way for us to deal with them, with him and with each other. This morning, we're going to look at the future sin, those sins yet to occur, those things yet that we would do in our lives that would be not favorable in the eyes of God. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to close out our study of the Lord's Prayer this morning. We've been in this study for about eight weeks now. We're going to finish up this morning. We're going to put a period, I think, on what Jesus is telling us here, how to pray. So if you read with me in verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you're reading out of the New American Standard, you'll see that the rest of that verse is in brackets. If you don't know what that means, it means it's not found in all of the original manuscripts. So it's, it's not completely agreed upon by all the scholars out there. But it does say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we're reading about... Verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, sometimes questions can be raised about the meaning of this petition, of this section of the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes people raise questions about who God is and what is he really intending by these words. So we need to, again, spend a little time unpacking the meaning of the words, and then we'll make the application, how do we live them out. Notice this, and he says, do not lead us. Uh, Understand that the words lead us are important in that phrase. God is leading us if you follow him. Whether we know it or not, he is leading us. He was always moving the believer towards sanctification, towards holy living. Even when we are disobedient, It is not outside the scope of God's sovereign plan and he will discipline us and chastise us and scourge us if necessary to get us to come back to live the life that he has designed for us. He'll do whatever is necessary to to win us back and to bring us back, not to pay us back. Think Jonah and the whale, right? God went after Jonah not to pay him back, but to bring him back. God does the same thing with his children, So God is leading us. But where is he leading us? Or more importantly, where is he not leading us? Some of the uh, older, uh, other translations will will say, lead us not into temptation. I kind of like that. Because it points out that God is leading us, but not here. And this phrase can often be misinterpreted by some who think that maybe we are pleading for God to not lead us into a place where we can sin. Now, we need to have a very correct and proper theological understanding of who our God is before we go any further. 
We need to understand what we're asking him to do and we're asking him not to do in this prayer. And it all kind of comes down to one word. The word temptation that you see in verse 13. The meaning of that word. It's pyrasmon in the Greek. And in the English, when I say temptation, you probably went instantly to some kind of negative connotation, didn't you? You probably went to some idea that temptation is an inducement towards evil. Did you not? Because in English, when we say temptation, we generally think of it as an inducement to evil. It's natural to think of that word that way. But in the original uh, uh, Greek that this was written in, there is no natural connotation to that. The word uh, pyrasmon is actually neutral. It can mean trial. It can mean test as well. So we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture to understand, are we talking about a temptation that induces us to do evil, or is it simply a word meaning a trial or a test that God is uh, bringing us to? To get that, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So hold your finger here and go over to James. Book of James, chapter 1. Run over there just a little bit. When you got it, say you got it. Got it. Okay. Now, in James chapter 1, we see James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, Jesus' half-brother. He says this in verse 2, and we've all read these verses. Okay, We've all known these passages. And James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various pyrasmen. Same Greek word. He says, trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's what James is talking about. So I think when we start looking at the word and how it's used in the context, we need to understand that it's not an inducement towards evil that we're discussing in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, uh, James goes on in, in verse 12, who says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under pyrasmon. For once he has been received, approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But then he goes on to say, let no one say when he is tempted, pyrasmon, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. I think we need to make this statement very clear this morning. That God is not the author of evil. Like James says, God does not tempt us. In fact, he goes on to explain how we're tempted. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So understand what James is saying. The context of Matthew 6 is trials, it is tests, it is the pyrasmin temptation that we're talking about in Matthew chapter 6. And that goes with the character of God. We have to understand the character of God. He's holy, he's righteous, he's perfect, he's loving, he's merciful, he's patient. So all of that understanding fits with the character of who God is. He is not the author of sin, he is not the inducer of evil. So why should we ask him not to do what he would never do? 
Why should we pray, do not lead us into temptation? And the question really is, does God lead us into a place of trial or testing? Not temptation, inducement to evil. But does God lead us to a place of trial or uh, or testing? Does he do that? Let me ask the question again. Does God lead us into a place of trial or testing? I'm going to ask one more time. You've got to answer this. Does God lead us into a place of trial or testing? Yes, a few of you agree with me. Thank you. He does. If you don't understand that this morning, then you've got to kind of come to grips with that because he absolutely puts us into a place of trial and testing. Why? God is always trying to build up two things in your life. You've heard me say this before. Two things God is building up in you. You remember what they are? It's been a while since I've said that, isn't it? One is your faith in him to trust him, and the other is your character. Who you are when no one else is looking. The character of Christ, in other words. So God is always building up your faith. He's always building up your character. And he's going to do that not just through blessings, because when life is good, none of us are really being stretched in our faith, are we? It's when life is hard. It's when testing comes and trial comes that we are strengthened and that we are grown and that we begin to look more like Jesus. So James says we should be joyful. Take joy in all of your suffering. Joy that trials are coming because we know that God's doing something in our life because of it. But here's the thing. Growing because of trials and tests, the pyrasmos of this verse in Matthew chapter 6, growth is painful. Right? It hurts to be tried and tested by God. It hurts in life when we grow, when our bodies grow. Remember those growing pains? Yeah, your knees always hurt all the time. I grew, I was like six foot tall when I was like 13 years old. Boy, my knees hurt all the time. They were growing way too fast. It's freakish. That's the only reason I got to play on a basketball team, because I was so, so darn tall. I wasn't any good, I was just tall, you know? Growth is painful. It hurts. It must happen, though. But it doesn't mean we have to look forward to it. And I, and I believe, go back to Matthew chapter 6 now. I believe what Jesus says here, when he says, do not lead us into temptation. Lead us not into pyrasmos. Please don't test us or put us in a trial. What he's saying is that I don't think, we, we need to understand, we naturally don't want to go there. Naturally, we, does anybody here pray for trials and tests? Good. Because that would be kind of weird. That would be freakish too, wouldn't it? We know it's God's way of growing us. We know it's good for us. We know it's what he desires us to be. But we don't have to look forward to it. Now, do we ever see in Scripture God doing that, actually sending people out to be tested and to be tried, to be examined, if you will? Do we ever see that in Scripture? Well, I'll tell you, the first one that we see, that ought to come to your mind, Matthew chapter 4. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after he's baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, what happens? What does Scripture say happens? He's anointed with the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River, and then what happens? He is sent out into a bad place for a long time to be tried and tested. The, the Scripture actually says tempted by Satan himself, the greatest tempter of them all. 
in order to prove who he was and to validate his character and faith in his father. And we also see that it is the Holy Spirit that sent him there. By design, Jesus was sent into the wilderness to be tried, to be tempted, not to the inducement of evil, but to be his character to be examined and his faith to be evident for all to see. And again, God is not the tempter even in that situation with Jesus being sent to the wilderness. But it does lead Jesus to a situation and a place where his testing will present him with a temptation. And that's the key that we need to understand. He's going to be uh, shown a, a way and a choice to either follow God, follow his faith, follow his character, or be disobedient to God, deny God, and follow his, a selfish path of unrighteousness. And so the temptation presents itself with an opportunity for selfishness and sin. And so this morning, as we begin to look at this, we've got to understand if God would send his own son into a place of suffering as a test or trial that would have a temptation to avoid, that sin might come into play... Would he not do that with us as well? Should he not do that with us as well? Also, you look in the prayer that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? What did he pray? God, bring it on. I'm ready for this. Bring it on. Let's go. Is that what he said? Take it away. Yeah. It's okay to say, God, don't lead me into that place of trial. I'm really not up for that right now. I'm really not Jake about going to a place of testing at this moment. Jesus said the same thing. But then he said those awesome words. But not my will, but yours. Because he knew that God's way was the best way, not his own. So the phrase, do not lead us into temptation, here's what it is. It's a request concerning our weakness. Understand that this morning. It's our weakness that Jesus is addressing It teaches us that we are liable at all times to be led astray and fall, even in a time of testing and examination by God. This phrase instructs us to confess our infirmity and beseech God to hold us up and not to allow us to run into sin. It's another plea. Get this now. It's in the same series of pleas that we've been going through the whole Lord's Prayer for God to provide what we ourselves do not have. And that's the way we should look at this phrase in the Lord's Prayer. God, give us something that we can't manufacture on our own. Our our request really is going to boil down to for God to, to watch over our eyes and watch over our ears and watch over our mouths and our feet and our hands so that anything we say or hear or see or any place we go, anything we do will protect us from sin. That is the request we're talking about. John MacArthur says this, We ask him who orders all things in heaven and earth to restrain us from going into that which would injure our souls and never to let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. It's 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Just so we are clear, you need to recognize what it is that does lead us to sin. If it is not God who just presents the pyrasmos, the trial, the, the, the examination, the testing, and then from that we have to make a decision, follow God or be disobedient, and disobedience is always sin. If we understand what that is, then where does the real temptation come from? Three places. The world, 
The world systems, you, you, you know that the world systems are run by Satan. The world systems are designed to make people continue in their disobedience to God. And our flesh, it's the second thing, our flesh responds to the world. Our flesh responds to the images and the things we hear and the things we see and the other people around us that are living in a, in a life of disobedience. Our flesh will respond to that. We've got to understand that this morning. And then finally, Satan. And we're going to talk about him for a little bit this morning. Not overly, I don't think, but we need to mention the, the fact that Satan is in the world and he is our enemy. Do not lead us into temptation. And, and here's the thing. You can't disconnect those two phrases, really. They have to go together. Do not lead us into temptation, but... So it's, a, it's tied together. They both got to go together. But deliver us from evil. Deliver us. Rescue us. Protect us from our tendency to do evil when presented with a trial or a test. You know what Jesus is doing? I think he's acknowledging an, an honest prayer that we all would have. You know, we would pray something like this. God, I don't want to be led into temptation. I don't want to be led into a trial. I don't really want to go have a test right now. I mean, we're like that in school, aren't we? Nobody loves examinations. I guess some of you do, but you're weird. Don't lead me into those things, God. But when I am and when you do, Lord God, deliver me from the sins of the flesh that are aroused by and caused by the activity of Satan and the world. If it's your will, God, to put me into a place where I will grow, then deliver me and rescue me and give me the ability to not sin. That's what we're praying for, and that is a good prayer. Because when trials come, not not if, when trials come, and they will. What Jesus is telling us is to pray in such a way that God will protect us from evil so that I won't sin. Understanding evil is a present and very near temptation in the world, and we need to pray like this so that we will not fall to it. So how do we do that? Three things I want to move through this morning. Three things to kind of help us understand the context when we pray this part of the Lord's Prayer from now on that will help us be delivered from evil and to pass the test. The first thing is awareness. Awareness. I mean, knows what awareness is, right? It's like you're understanding what's going on around you. You're aware of your circumstances. You're aware of where you are in the world and what's going on around you. And awareness is what we need to have about evil, that it is real. Some translations will actually talk about this passage and say, uh, deliver us from the evil one, actually giving it an object. And there's an important distinction we need to make this morning that I think sometimes Christians forget about because our minds have been been kind of uh, uh, taken over by Hollywood in a lot of ways. And here's the thing. Evil is not an abstract concept. Some heavy words here. Let me explain that. Evil is not an abstract concept. Evil is not a force that exists in the world that is in opposition to good. It is not Jedi's versus Sith. It is not the dark side versus Jedi. It is not that. Evil is not just some nebulous abstract force out there in the universe waiting to find someone to take over. 
Evil is only, get this now, evil is only manifest, it's only made known in the hearts and deeds and thoughts and actions of those who perpetuate it. That's heavy. That's why Jesus can call people evil brood of vipers. That's why Scripture says mankind's heart is evil from his youth, Genesis 9. Evil has a a, a way of of arousing itself in us because of our disobedience towards God and our sinful, fleshly nature. But more than that, evil has a face. Evil has a name, Lucifer and Satan. And so we need to have awareness that there is evil in the world that intends to do us harm. Satan and his demons have a lot of methods that love to activate the flesh. They... If I said Satan knows your buttons to push, would you agree with me? Yeah. We need to have awareness that there are spiritual forces of wickedness in the world. Sometimes I have to tell Christians, pull your head out of the sand. Look, Ephesians 2 starts off with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, everybody, before they came to know Christ, lived under dominion and the influence of Satan, and there was nothing you could do about it. And now Jesus has come to break his spirit and to redeem us and restore us. And now his church of of redeemed people Restored people would, in Ephesians 3, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What we do here is so much bigger than what we see. There are rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that are looking at what we do as God's people. And God is saying, watch them. Sometimes I think we get the idea that church is just this extra add-on to what we have in life. And i got to go on Sunday mornings, and I probably need a Bible study, and you know, I probably need to clean up my act a little bit and do some acts of service. And It's so much more than that. God is showing off his people to the universe of, of evil. His manifold wisdom, how smart he is, in other words, might now be made known through the church, that's you and that's me, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we need to avoid the extremes of of understanding, of being this awareness of evil. Sometimes we're just ignorant to it. We go about our lives and we're we're trying to get through every day. We don't realize what's going on around us. There's no awareness of what's happening in the world. There's no awareness that Satan is real. The other extreme is that we can be fixated on it. We see Satan everywhere. Satan was in my toaster this morning. Oh, my gosh. You know. Did your toaster ever break? And you're like, Satan, that's Satan, right? Or your car breaks down, Satan's attacking me again. That might be a little extreme. But understand this. We need to have a proper perspective of our enemy as we live in the world day by day. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded... In other words, be aware, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like, you've heard this verse before, right? Roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan's not on, 
you know, a roller coaster ride, just having fun, hoping people kind of follow him into evil and disobedience. He is actively out there to tear you away from your Lord. He wants to devour you, sift you, like Jesus said to Peter. But Peter says this, resist him, firm in your faith. How do we get firm in our faith? Tests and trials that make us stronger. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers in the world. Awareness that evil is real. And acknowledges, number two, acknowledge that evil's intent is for our continued rebellion against God. That's our flesh. Understand that anytime we give in to the flesh, anytime we agree with what Satan's doing in the world, we are in disobedience, continue disobedience to God. Our flesh and our weaknesses is what Satan appeals to. Like I said a minute ago, he knows what buttons to push. And get this. And I don't preach a whole lot about Satan and evil. I'm not one of those guys who fixates on it, but I think the passage, it, it gives us credence to do that this morning. Look, Satan is the original Terminator. You ever see that movie, the original one? Arnold Schwarzenegger, when the guy comes from the future and he's trying to convince uh, the woman who would be the mother of the savior of the world, he's trying to convince her who the Terminator is and he's in the police station and he looks at the camera and he says, he's coming to kill you. That's all he does. That's what he does. That's who Satan is. He wants to disrupt your life. He wants to tear you away from your family. He wants to disrupt the, the family that you live with day by day, your blood and flesh family, your spiritual family. That's what he does. That's all he does. John 10, verse 10. Jesus said, the thief, talking about Satan, the thief comes only, only to steal, only to kill, only to destroy. And then those great words, but I have to come give, to give life and give it abundantly. So acknowledge that sin is in the world and don't compromise with it. There's no such thing as a small sin. Sometimes we forget about that. There's some bad theology in the world out there that says there's, there's different levels of sin. And for this, you can get away with these repentance things and with this over here, it's a little bit heavier duty. No, there's no such thing as a small sin. It's all evil. And realize this. Whenever there is a trial, whenever there is a pyrasmos, whenever there is a test that God's going to bring us to, there is only a pass or fail. You know those classes you went to, high school or college, whether there was only a pass or is there a P or there was an F on your paper? That was it. Right? There was no grading on a curve. You either passed or you failed, period. It was a pass or fail course. That's what pyrasmos is. That's what trials and tests are with God is pass or fail. Yet, every trial that God allows can turn into a temptation and inducement to evil if we're not careful. Remember Joseph, the coat of many colors that his dad gave him. His brothers sold him into slavery. They were very cruel to him. Was that evil? Did they have evil intent in their hearts? For sure. Was it an evil act to sell your brother into slavery? Sure. And many years later, when they came to Egypt and they met up again with their brother Joseph, what did he say to them? You meant evil against me, but what did God do? God wanted it for good. Praise our God who can turn every situation into something good for us and that glorifies him. 
So every struggle we experience is allowed by God to test us, to exercise our spiritual muscles, and to help mature us. And if we don't commit the situation to God, then Satan will turn it into a temptation. And Satan will entice us by our lusts and our flesh being in the world and draw us into sin. So we have to have awareness and we have to acknowledge what's going on. And then finally we can do this. We can accept that there is escape from the temptation. There is a way out. You don't have to sin. You don't have to fall to disobedience and rebellion. Now we pray that the Lord will never lead us into a trial that will present such a temptation that we will not be able to resist it. We're praying against that, aren't we? It's a natural prayer. Even Jesus prayed, don't let me have this cup. We all pray, God, don't give me something I can't handle, don't we? Let's be perfectly honest. We all have those prayers. God, don't let me get into a place where I can't handle this. It's natural. However, what God wants to remind us, what Jesus is making so clear here, is that he has made a way. He will deliver you from evil. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, is God's promise that he won't give us more than we can handle. Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes this, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be pyrasmode, tempted with a trial or a test beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. Now look, God's going to bring things into our lives that will become a test for us. You cannot live in the world and not see reading material, movies, television programs, internet, or even songs that can be a test to reveal our spiritual strength. And if we fail, if we fail the test, because it's pass or fail, right? If we fail, we'll possibly be led into a temptation that will possibly entice our lust and possibly cause us to sin. How about if we lose our job? Is that a test? And there's been a lot of that in the last few years, people losing their job or not getting the job that they wanted. Maybe a test. Probably is. How are you going to handle losing your job? With joy? Committing it to the Lord? Help me grow from this experience? You do that, you pass the test. But be sure... Be sure that you know, have awareness, acknowledge that Satan is probably going to try and take that situation and corrupt it and tempt you to complain, become bitter, perhaps all, do all you can do to ruin your boss's reputation. Satan's going to tempt you and entice you to do those kinds of things. And if you follow that, you fail. Now, the good thing with God is, in his program, he automatically re-enrolls you for the next class. Right? If you don't pass this test, he's going to automatically re-enroll you. You don't have to worry about it. You'll get it again until you pass. Maybe what happens to others will affect you and is the test. The divorce of parents, divorce of your children, death of a loved one is going to test you. How do you handle that? Your spouse's health, I'll tell you what. Nancy's health problems has been the biggest test that I've ever endured. And there are times that I have failed. However, by the grace of God, there are many more times now that I'm passing. Because he's teaching me 
growing. He kept really re-enrolling me. I took that class so many times, I finally got it right. Look, when it comes to God's will, the sooner you get out of the conjecture business, why is this happening, oh, why me? The sooner you get out of that business, the better. Larry Crabb, who is, a, is an awesome uh, counselor and pastor, he said this, if you don't go to your grave confused, you don't go to your grave trusting. I love that. If you don't go to your grave confused about what God does in the world and why people do things and why, why things, if you don't go to the grave confused, you don't go to the grave trusting because God doesn't always give us the answers to everything that's going on. He just says, trust me, and you'll pass the test. And finally, here's the last thing I want to talk about this morning. There is a way out. There's a way to overcome and to pass the test, not just pass the test or the trial, not just to to, uh, successfully get through the pyrasmos, but there's a way to overcome the sin, the temptation that go along with that possibly. You know what that is? It's a two-syllable word. begins with gos, ends with pel. The gospel. That is what we have for victory, where we can be overcomers to pass the trial, to overcome temptation of the sin. And I want to point out again this morning, and you can't say this too many times, the gospel is not a one-time event in your life. The gospel is not something that you believe, you walked the aisle, said a prayer, got baptized, and all of a sudden, boom, you've, you've, you've accomplished that, now what else do I do? What's the next thing do I do? How many Bible studies do I need to go to? What verses do I need to memorize? That's, sometimes we get caught up in that, isn't it? We forget the gospel is an everyday, all-day, rest-of-your-life belief. The gospel is the power of God working in our lives to help us overcome the world and the flesh, and especially Satan. And, and, and we always around Easter time, we always go to that 1 Corinthians 15 passage, right? Talk about the resurrection when Paul's giving this, this great dissertation about why we should believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the, 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 the gospel that he preached that you received, he said, that you stand in right now, that you are being saved by, he says. Talking about a present, active force in your life, the gospel. He's telling us that the resurrection is important. It's not only important, it's super good news. You're saying, well, what does the resurrection have to do with Matthew chapter 6? It has everything to do with Matthew chapter 6. It is the power by which God delivers us from evil. We are not just forgiven at the cross, but we are alive forevermore and able to overcome sin because of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus living in you. Do you believe that this morning? The Holy Spirit and the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead lives in you. And Jesus overcame death. I don't know of any of us that have trials right now that represent what Jesus had to go through. And nothing that we're going through is less than what Jesus went through. And his, the power of, of the Holy Spirit to bring about his resurrection will help us overcome sin in the world. The gospel is not only the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that now the debt is forgiven and God's wrath is appeased, but the gospel is the good news that Jesus rose again to overcome Satan and death for you and for me. And the Apostle Paul seems to think that we should understand that that power is there to overcome sin today, every day. 
And he says that if Jesus had not risen, that we of all people would be most helpless and hopeless because we would still be in our sins. But he has overcome. He has been resurrected. And so we have confidence that we will pass the test. We have confidence that we will endure the temptation, that we will overcome sin. And it's the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's the only sign that we have, that we have that power. If you have the Spirit, you have Christ. If you have Christ, you have the Father. Do you have the Spirit this morning? If you have God's Spirit living in you, you can and you will pass the test if you trust in Him and you rely upon Him. You will overcome sin. You know, in John chapter 20, Jesus said to them just before He left, after the crucifixion, after, he was, after the resurrection, Jesus said to His disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We, also, we just said to stop there. We're kind of like, okay, let's talk about sending and missionaries and all that. But then we, if we just keep reading, it's amazing what you learn in the Bible if you just keep reading. And then when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus breathed on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead gives you the power to overcome sin, to pass the pyrasmos. Look, quoting Scripture alone isn't going to help you. You need to quote Scripture, but quoting a Scripture alone is not going to help you overcome. You need the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God helps us discern evil, guard against it. We must depend and trust on the Holy Spirit. And since we are being saved by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, we look to Him to rescue us. And we increasingly submit our life to Him, the trials to Him and the tests to Him, temptations to Him so that He can rescue us. We don't take matters into our own hands and we don't despair and we don't become bitter, but instead we go to Scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit, deliver us from evil. We sang about it this morning, and and Rush even prayed about it. We are more than conquerors. Romans 8 says this, for your sake, Jesus, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you think that's a trial? Do you think that's a test? Yeah, we haven't resisted the point of death yet, but they did in those days. But in all these things, these things being tests and trials, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then Paul says this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, that's those people up there, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are words to live by, to endure the next pyrasmos, the next trial, test, or temptation that God brings into your life. And so as we, as we conclude this morning, this petition in Matthew 6, 13, what Jesus is really giving us, it's a safeguard against having a, a, a corruption and a, a false sense of security, a false sense of self-sufficiency of what I can do in the world. Because this side of heaven, we will never arrive spiritually. We will always need to rely upon God's Spirit to help us get through, to be free of the danger of sin, to always overcome and to pass the test. In fact, Jesus prayed for us. So we're going to close this morning as we think about Jesus prayed for you. Specifically, 
He prayed for you and he prayed for me. He prayed for everyone who would ever follow him. In John 17, in the garden, he prays this. I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He specifically talks about Satan there. Same context. He's praying the Lord's Prayer for you and for me. Does God answer every prayer that Jesus prays? You better believe it. So we've been through the Lord's Prayer, talking about God's provision. All that we need to live life is available to us. This prayer helps us acknowledge that and realize that. And when we pray, we are, we are first to give God His rightful place. Heavenly Father, hallowed be Your name. And then we bring our needs to Him. And He will meet them in His abundance and His limitless supply. So as we close this series, I want to reflect upon this passage one last time. And let's reflect upon the petitions and the requests that Jesus makes with us uh, for us to ask to the Father. But I want to do it a little bit different. Let me read it one more time. And then want to, uh, one last closing comment. Pray that in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I know you guys probably can quote that better than I can. There was an unknown author... He summarized well the impact of this pattern of praying. And I hope, you know, my life has been changed by going through this series. My prayer life has been dramatically altered. And I hope yours is too. And this unknown author, he summarized this, this pattern of prayer. And, and he, he kind of put things in a, in a different perspective. And he said this, I cannot say our if I live only for myself in a spiritual watertight compartment. I cannot say Father if I do not endeavor each day to act like His child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am laying up no treasure there. I cannot say hallowed be your name if I am not striving for holiness. I cannot say your kingdom come if I am not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful day. I cannot say your will be done if I am disobedient to his word. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I will not serve him in the here and now. I cannot say give us our daily bread if I am dishonest or an under-the-counter shopper. I cannot say forgive us our debts if I harbor a grudge against anyone. I cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself in its path. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I did not put on the whole armor of God and trust in God's Spirit to deliver me. And I cannot say yours is the kingdom if I do not give to the king the loyalty due him as a faithful subject. I cannot attribute to him the power if I fear what men may do. I cannot ascribe to him the glory if I'm not seeking honor if I'm seeking honor only for myself, and I cannot say forever if the horizon of my life is bounded completely by the things of time. Wow. Can we pray this prayer? It's not just a bunch of words that we repeat, is it? It actually has a lot of meaning behind those words. We need to be taking that into account the next time we pray that prayer. Can we really pray all those things? And if we can't, and let's be honest and ask God to redirect our hearts so that we can. So I want to commit and challenge you to, to, to looking at this in a different way. 
the rest of your life, this becomes the pattern for all your prayers, but in the way that Jesus intended. And I pray that your walk with God will be revolutionized. And not just your prayer life, but the things that come out of your life here on this earth. And I think if we really look closely at this passage and what it really means, you know, sometimes we're like, I don't know if I have anything to pray to you this morning, God. You'll never be able to say that if you look at this passage the way we've looked at it. We'll always have something to say in prayer, and being alone with God will never, ever be the same.